Hi, I'm Jamin Brazel, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Orion Brown, founder of the Black Travel Box and brand management consultant. The Black Travel Box is a line of personal care products for travelers of color that makes travel easier. Prior to starting the Black Travel Box, Orion has served as senior brand manager at Kraft Foods, Backflip, Studios, and Oracle. Thank you so much, Orion, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast comes from FuelCycle. This episode is brought to you by FuelCycle Ignition. Ignition is the agile insights platform that enables leaders and their teams to improve product, brand, customer, and employee experiences with no insights experience required. With FC Live virtual focus groups and interviews, an ad effectiveness solution, and survey automation capabilities, FuelCycle Ignition offers the only all-in-one Agile Insights ecosystem for supercharging the relationship between brands and their customers, and serves the world's most innovative brands, including Google, Hulu, Tufts Health Plan, Kahart, and more. To learn how Ignition can take your research to the next level, visit FuelCycle.com. So I'd like to start with a little bit of context. Tell us about your parents and how they informed what you're doing today. Ooh. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I grew up primarily in a single parent um, household. I was raised by my mom and my dad and I actually are in touch later in life. And so, you know, for many years, I was the only child with a lot of time on my hands, similar to kind of how people are feeling right now. I spent a lot of time reading (laughs) and being very nerdy. And that was always really encouraged, even by, by both of my parents, just to work really hard and have very, very clear goals. And so ironically, what I do today has nothing to do with what I say the first 20, 22 years of my life focused on. I always thought I was going to be a doctor and a lot of life happened. And I got to my junior year of college and I was like, I need to pivot and I need to go get a real skill because I know pipettes and I know OCHEM, but like, how do I go out into the world? Um, And Mm. so Really, for me, I think it was the encouragement to focus on goals and be really clear about what it is that I want, and then just kind of be relentless. Not relentless. I feel like that sounds negative, but be very much passionate about going after that. And so I've always had sort of that support in the back of my mind, not necessarily in the cliched millennial sense, like you can do anything, but sort of you can do anything if you're going to work hard at it and, and you really focus yourself and you're, you're smart about it. So I think that that's what sort of led me to the entrepreneurial path, having that kind of basis of encouragement. 
Who was a role model for you that installed that that tenacity to pick a goal and go after it and achieve it? Oh, definitely my mom. Definitely my mom. She's she's tenacious almost to a fault, I will say. Um, <laughs> she's I, I've never seen her look at a situation and go, I don't really know what to do. So I'm just going to sit here and wait. She's just not that person. And so whether it be small things or big things, I mean, you know, growing up in a single parent household primarily and not having a lot of money, not having a lot of resources, I mean, she would look at an outfit and then go learn how to make it. Um, mm. So we spent a lot of time in Joanne fabrics and, and looking at patterns. And she made my clothes until I was about probably four or five. So, you know, there was never a want for, for being a fashionable child and there was never a want for her to be fashionable. Um, and so she, so she saw places where we didn't really have enough to do it to get the things that we wanted. And she found ways around that. She found ways to, to create what she wanted, create the life that she wanted. I mean, that's super inspiring, <laughs> uh, right? It's so, so amazing how, and you know, you're right. You can do a lot with a little, but probably the, the bigger point in that framework is the grit that that installs in, or has the opportunity to install in your family uh, or the people uh -huh. that you're around. It doesn't have to be just be family. It could be employees or whatever. Yeah. Bosses even, right? So as you've recognized that trait in yourself, have you been imparting that in any way to other people? Definitely. I actually do quite a bit of coaching in a number of areas. And I think the biggest challenge that people that come to me for coaching or mentorship or advice is usually the, it's the myopathy of not knowing what you can do and not necessarily believing what you can do. So I think, you know, being exposed to, you know, something as simple as seeing a person make an outfit that they've always wanted. I mean, you would never think about it. You would go, oh, that's so nice. Oh, I wish I could have that. Oh, and then you start to kind of feel sorry for yourself and all of those things. But when you realize that there is a way to get it, if nothing else, <laughs> and this is totally me, even if I choose not to make it because I just don't like sewing that much, but having the choice gives me agency in the situation. Now I have chosen to not take that thing or to do that thing or to get that thing. And so I find a lot with folks that I'm chatting with from a mentorship perspective, they're stuck is less so them going, I don't know what to do. It's, I don't know what I can do. And so a lot of times I am coaching people on, well, what's your situation? What's the worst thing that could happen? Now, what are all the different things that could lead to that? And then what are the things that couldn't? Like, let's just imagine. We, we use our imagination to figure out potential paths. And once you start having more choices and more paths, then it just really opens up not only your own intrinsic motivation and belief in yourself, but it starts to really open up opportunities for you to brainstorm further and to be more creative and to find new ways to get things done. So in that spirit, you've obviously asked yourself this question and then you started mm -hmm. the Black Travel Box. Tell us a little bit about that company. I started Black Travel Box. It started out as a, as a passion project a couple of years ago. Uh, I was still working in corporate. And after 15 years in corporate, you know, I've, I had learned the, uh, the routine of, get my vacation days, go somewhere lovely, decompress from all of the work days, lather, rinse, repeat, no pun intended. And so, <laughs> you know, that's something that I had done over the years, you know, pretty religiously. That was one of the big benefits of the, the type of job that I had. Um, you know, that's where my money kind of went. Um, that and food, but that's a whole other conversation. Love food. And so 
on these travels, I noticed that I sort of noticed that I would have the same issue of as a woman of color going to places, and it's not even necessarily far flung places. Although Japan is definitely you know, the place that I was like, oh, no, I definitely can't do this. But, you know, it's the same if I go to like the middle of Ohio, going to a a place and realizing that I don't have enough product with me, the little one to two ounce bottles that come, you know, in travel bags are just not enough. And oftentimes, they're not the things that I really use. And so it just becomes a hassle. Like, it's very easy for me to dump all my stuff from my closet into a bag and go. But the personal care aspect of it and feeling and looking the way that I want to when I'm out of my home was really a challenge. And so I just kind of thought, this should exist in the world. There's no reason that, you know, just because I have textured hair or, you know, slightly darker skin, I shouldn't be able to have products that work for me and work well for me. And so that was sort of the impetus. And again, it becomes that thing where you see a need and you can either look at it and go, oh, well, that really sucks. Let me just complain about it or do something. And so that's what I did. I started it as a passion project just to see if I could do something and see if I was the only person having this issue. Um, and I learned very quickly that I'm not. And <laughs> and the world really does need uh, a brand like this. So it's so funny, like seeing how that ties back to your mom making clothes. You know what? I honestly never thought of it until you asked me. <laughs> but it does. It does. It's what you're exposed to. It's it informs so much at a subconscious level. And that's why it's really important to be aware of what you expose yourself to, what you expose your kids to, both on the positive and the negative side of it, because it it sticks with you. So you've commissioned, executed, you've used a lot of market research over your career. Mm -hmm. The topic that we're really diving in on today is diversity. What is the role or what role does diversity play in the context of the actual team that is doing the research? I think the operative word is context. Diversity provides context so that data and observation can be appropriately gleaned and, and you know, given the right value set. Oftentimes, you know, misunderstanding or misinterpretation of data comes from a lack of experience as to what that situation or what that person, you know, if you're interviewing someone, what type of experience they've had and what what their lens is. People say a lot of things. You can't read minds though, right? So when you're doing market research and you're asking either via survey or via focus group or whatever it might be, um, and even looking at buyer data, you still don't know why that person purchased. You can try to correlate, but causation is really hard to get to unless you do a lot of digging and you have a lot of sort of experience with what that person's life looks like and why they're making the choices that they're making. I interviewed uh, another woman who I think you may have met, Pepper, and she Mm -hmm. was telling me in the focus groups that she does specifically that are ethnic, she will focus in on, you know, having whatever the ethnicity is, having it the same moderator Mm-hmm. as the entire group, even even down to like the if there's a on-site videographer, that person has to match the same ethnicity. And the reason mm-hmm. why she thinks that's so important is because it, there's this like shared context that exists mm-hmm. that as soon as you bring in somebody else, that can be potentially disrupted. Um, yeah. And then there could be even a different way of externalizing a question um, or the answer to a question is have you seen that 
play out? Like, what's your what's your point of view on that? Every situation is different, right? But I think at the core of that, it is very, very true, particularly when you talk about race differences, somewhat cultural differences as well. I think the crux of it is cultural, right? If you have a moderator that uses a certain term or the, the uh, respondent uses a certain term and the, and the moderator has a cultural understanding of what their intent was, then that just gets you to a much clearer data point. But broadly speaking, the idea of, I don't know if you're familiar with code switching, which we everybody, every human being does this to some extent, but we certainly in the U.S. have a lot of code switching that happens on a racial basis. But it's that idea of you go into a room and based off of the demographic of the room, and the context of the situation, you express yourself differently. You use different language, both in body language and verbally. And so, you know, the, the sort of universal example that I like to give is people who, you know, have been to church before. And, you know, you go to a church and you know it's a really formal church. So you change the way you show up. Your clothes are going to be different. The way you speak to people are going to be different. And everybody, for the most part, knock on wood, at least censors themselves not to swear when they walk into church because they don't want to offend the people (laughs) around them, right? It's (laughs) It's sort of the same thing. And when you talk about cultural code switching, you know, there's an undercurrent of, and this is why I personally believe anybody who's doing market research should have a really good, you know, deep understanding of culture and have done cultural studies. Um, in some form or fashion, because there's so many things that are underlying in in the spaces between spaces with words um, and action that it's very cool and it's very interesting and it's very deep. But this is what takes, this is where the art comes in rather than the science, because the science won't tell you that when a Black woman enters a room and she's got white females around her, she will censor herself in one direction or another. She may be more overtly expressing her culture, feeling like she has to represent herself in some way or represent a broader culture in some way. Or she may do the opposite and say, you know what, I kind of want to be the wallflower in this situation because I don't want to be the person tagged with every question that has anything to do with a person that's Black. So, um, but understanding that you won't see that in the data. You, data will not tell you that. When you've seen this executed well, or actually let me back up, have mm-hmm. you actually seen intentionality around the composition of the research team from a a vendor before? Not particularly. What I would say is typically what we'll hear is, well, our team understands and we, you know, are very sensitive to these types of differences. However, and then I feel like the, the dot, dot, dot is, well, we just don't have enough people of color. Well, we just don't have we don't have them on hand, but our staff is really good. Um, And so I think, you know, when you mentioned talking about having both a moderator and even the videographer, you know, being a person of color in particular, I'm like, I'm trying to think back. I don't think I've ever necessarily seen that done consciously um, in my career. Yeah. So I haven't either, actually. I've heard a lot and done a lot of like, you know, national rep, sampling uh-huh. but i've never really thought about it before this i've gone through this exercise until now i mean it's it's a little bit it's actually a lot embarrassing to be quite honest with you yeah and it's a material miss i think one of the things that's come up is the need to recognize the differences as opposed to this adopt this perspective of like colorblindness mm-hmm. which i i think i know i've i've been 
I don't want to say like socially conditioned to do, but (laughs) I don't really know. Like, I don't know where that comes from. You know, the half dozen people that I've talked to about this topic, you know, all said that, listen, we need to acknowledge and, and even celebrate the diversity, right? As opposed to it being this, this thing that somehow doesn't magically exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I think the sensitivities around racism in our country in particular are such that people are conditioned to stay away from it and, and not discuss it openly or as a fact of history. And there's a whole, you know, there's a ton of factors that go into that. Right. But that's, that's sort of our American culture in many places. And so we can't normalize it to, Hey, if you want to, if you want to talk to people about hair care, would you put a bald guy in the room to ask some questions? <laughs> it's, there's yeah. no offense. It's not like we don't like bald people. It's just that you probably right. want to put someone in who can relate better to what the, the topic of discussion is. There's a reason why we have these programs when we talk about like police and the communities and stuff like that, where we want the police force to engage with the community in non sort of law enforcement type settings because you want yeah. people to understand each other. Like that's ultimately. You cannot get to any type of cursory understanding of a group without having participated in some kind of way and had some experience. You know, you don't want to, you, you, you know, hospitals have volunteers where they'll bring, you know, former cancer patients in or kids who have had cancer in to meet other kids who currently have cancer because there's, there's a kinship there that enables them to really speak the same language. And when you're talking about consumer insights, yeah, it's marketing, yeah, it's sort of frou-frou, but it's also psychology. It's psychology. So when you think about the psychology of insights, it's no different than going into a therapist. People pick therapists based on how well they communicate with each other. Like, unless you're being court ordered, you're, you're going to go to somebody right. that feels like a good fit. And they're typically going to feel like a good fit because they get you. And the get you, I think, is the exact point, right? That, And even if you're in a business to enterprise mm-hmm. environment, you know, you're still selling to humans. And so, you know, those human beings need to be able to relate and connect to. I, I mean, even thinking about like Zoom as it's been so dominant in this COVID-19 you know, and there's, and there's what, there's probably a hundred different video conference platforms out there. And yet this one's just like completely growing by gangbusters. And, and I really think of, you know, a key to that platform has been its ability to be able to connect to people before the crisis and then have a real clear sort of value prop, you know, deering. And so there's this like, and it isn't, it isn't, I want to sell you a license. It's like, I want to help enable conversations to connect humans. And so it's like transcending the, you know, they want to make money off me and moving into a, they want to add value to my life. And that's, and that's the, and that is the big unlock here. I think as you can understand minorities in the true way, as opposed to in an Excel file, then you're able to start unlocking their whys and then ultimately building a relationship with them and then figure out how you can add value to that. So what consideration should we give as researchers to diversity of the actual team that's doing the research? Uh, I think there's a couple places. One 
it's the, the, the data gathering team as well as the data anal analytics side of the team, right? Um, you know, oftentimes we will at least have the benefit of the brand team um, being somewhat diverse. But when we're actually talking about the folks who are gathering the data, you know, as we talked about earlier, having moderators um, or having, you know, the, any, any of the folks in the room that may uh, affect the, the course of the conversation, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to think about that. Again, it has to be contextual. So when we think of the context of talking about hair care and having a bald moderator, right? Like that's a pretty stark contrast. Um, but if we're talking about potato chips, it's totally fine, right? Um, so it really is thinking about the context of what the discussion is, if there are sensitivities around the discussion, um, and then assessing whether or not those sensitivities would be affected by the people that are in the room. On the analytics side of it, we wanna make sure that people, again, have enough context to interpret what's being said or what data is coming through. So if you're looking at quantitative data that says, um, you know, women are more likely to purchase a particular product, um, okay, that's great, but what kind of product are we talking about? Because if we're talking about a feminine care product, then duh, right? <laughs> Um, but if it's a feminine care product that people that that broadly speaking, like say men aren't aware of that women use as a feminine care product, um, uh, think about say baby powder. If I were to go, well, what do you use baby powder for? You would probably say you put it in baby diapers. Um, I grew up, and unfortunately now there's issues with talk and all of that. But um, I grew up in a culture where women used that and kind of talked a little in their underwear and kept it moving. You know, it kind of kept it fresh all day. Every time you sat down, you get a little a little tuft of uh, a baby powder. That's an insight that unless you've seen people do it, and nobody's going to talk about what they do with their underwear like publicly. So it's helpful to be a female in that situation. Um, and I think there's also some cultural skews as to how that happens as well. You know, I think mostly like a lot of my Southern family would probably be like, everybody does it, probably still does it. Um, but I don't necessarily know that everybody does that in their other, you know, another home. So it really is about having a good team that you can, uh, and you can't always, I, I say this with the understanding that you can't always anticipate what you're going to need. And especially when you're talking about on your analytics side of your team, when you're actually distilling data and, and coming up with what those insights are. But what you can do is have a fairly diverse team. And it's not just racial diversity. I think it's really cultural. I mean, ethnicity and race can be a great flag for that, but culture is really the underpinning, right? Um, because race and ethnicity affect the culture that you grow up in and that you kind of move through the world in. And so having that, if you're if you're working for a company in the UK and you don't have people that live or have lived in the UK analyzing the data from from these consumers, they're not going to understand the quirks of what they're saying and what they're doing and why they're doing it. So it really is important to to look for some of the obvious things and try to um, balance for that, and then also just having a substrate of diversity that's already kind of built into the team um, at a core level. So the things that you don't see coming, you at least have a good opportunity to hedge for. What would you think about if you were commissioning a project and the agency said they were bringing in an outside consultant um, that you know would represent 
um, whatever diverse group you're you're looking at at that particular point. Do you think that would that would enhance your view of the consultant, or do you think it would cause concern of of the consultant or the agency? Uh, the I'm sorry, of the agency. Yeah, I mean. I don't think it's necessarily a cause for concern. I feel like that happens in other spaces all the time. So for instance, if you're trying to do um, um, a digital marketing campaign and that campaign has a look and feel, they've come up with the idea and they're like, it should be like this and it should be, you know, 3D and it should look like Detective Pikachu and it should have like live action and it should have, you know, animation and all these things. But by the way, we don't have anybody in-house that does that. So we're going to bring in the secondary agency or this expert that knows how to do it. I wouldn't even blink. I would just be like, okay, fine. As long as it doesn't cost me anymore. <laughs> you know, as long as it's a pass-through cost. Um, I think that's great because I don't want you to do it if you don't know what you're doing. And I think there's nothing worse, at least for me as a, as a brand manager and a brand marketer, bringing on agencies and experts who are selling things they don't know and can't execute. I think it's better. Your value to me is not just the execution, but it's the management of it. It's your strategic eye. It's your capability of getting the thing done. And I think a lot of people forget that in in uh, their pursuit of getting the, the check and getting the, and scoring the deal. Um, and so I think there's no shame in saying, you know what? And actually I think it's a strength to say, I have a network of people that I know are excellent that I can dip into when we have particular needs that maybe our core team can't fulfill. I think that's a great way to go. But Ryan, my last question is, what is your personal motto? I don't know that I have a, a core motto per se. Um, I do have this quote that... Um, I, I put in my email uh, footer, which is, you know, I'm, I'm cheesy, but um, it's, there's this quote from uh, Frederick Douglass that is probably a little bit flowery, but I think at its core, um, really, I guess, is reflective of, of how I think about going about my day. And it, it goes something like, I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others rather than to be false and incur my own abhorrence. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, if I can live with myself at the end of the day, then I worry less about what other people think about the choices that I make. Um, that's how I sleep at night. So yeah, I guess that's sort of my motto. My guest today has been Orion Brown, founder of Black Travel Box and brand management consultant. Thank you, Orion, very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research podcast today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone else, if you have value in these episodes, I really hope you will take time to share it. This has been, for me, one of the most insightful conversations that I've had on the podcast. No offense to the 350 other people I've talked to, but... This issue of cultural diversity is something that I think we're not talking about nearly enough as, um, as researchers. And I, I hope that you'll take the time to share it with your colleagues, talk about it on Zoom or water coolers if that's where we are by the time this thing airs. Um, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day.